Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Thank you for joining us for this presentation. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu, or to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. This lecture is a part of the 12th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstiel. We'll be hearing from Dr. Nicholas Szekierski. Nicholas Szekierski earned his PhD at the History Institute at the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. His dissertation, Operations of the American Relief Administration in Poland, 1919 to 1922, tells the story of America's critical role in the early history of the Second Polish Republic. Dr. Szekierski is also a translator, most recently of 485 Days at Majdanek, the memoir of concentration camp survivor Bereshi Kivkowski, published last year by the Hoover Institution. It was the subject of a presentation at last year's Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium here at IWP. Dr. Szekierski, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for that kind introduction and thank you for having me again. The relief of Poland planned by the American Relief Administration, the ARA, in the spring of 1919 was going to be a massive logistical undertaking. International politics aside, simply transporting the huge volume of food needed was a tall order and an appropriate port of entry close to Poland was needed. The port city of Danzig, modern day Gdańsk, Poland, on the coast of the Baltic Sea, became the entry point for virtually all American relief supplies into Poland, and not just food, but also seed grain, medicine, sanitary supplies, shoes, clothing, automobiles, trucks, and raw materials for the beleaguered textile industry. Danzig was selected because it offered the closest connection to Poland from the sea. The Polish port at Gdynia, approved for construction in 1920 and operational by mid-decade, was still just an idea. Hamburg had been considered because of its superior port facilities, a 253-kilometer railroad network versus 17 kilometers in Danzig, hundreds more electric cranes, and a more than 20 times larger surface area. But the lengthy journey of supplies by rail through Germany would have been too much of a liability politically and materially due to the danger of theft. In the first half of 1919, Danzig was still under German control and had not yet become the free city of Danzig. Uh, that happened as a result of the Versailles Peace Treaty, and that wasn't finalized until late 1919, early 1920. So the Americans and Poles assigned to the city would have to negotiate with German officials to make their plans a reality. Since Poland did not yet have diplomatic relations with Germany, the Poles were wholly dependent on the Americans to compel the Germans to adhere to the conditions of the armistice and cooperate with them to the greatest extent possible. The Germans would not have recognized an independent Polish mission, so Polish delegates were officially a part 
the U.S. Food Administration Mission to Poland, which became the ARA in the spring of 1919, which conducted business on Poland's behalf. The three delegates of the Polish government who had formed the nucleus of an organization that eventually included several hundred Poles were Mieczysław Jałowiecki, the chief delegate, Witold Wańkowicz, deputy to the chief delegate, and Jan Rao, secretary of the delegation. Jałowiecki, born in 1876 in Sivu in the former Grand Duchy of Lithuania, then part of the Russian Empire, was an agronomist and landowner, landowner with extensive experience in agriculture and administration. He studied at the Riga Technical University and served as the agricultural consul to Germany in the Russian Ministry of Agriculture. His land possessions surrounding his family manor were a model for the most modern methods of farming and animal husbandry in the region, and he frequently hosted visitors interested in his operations and lectured on agricultural topics. Jalwiecki's manor and lands were taken over by the German administration of the area, and his frustrated attempt to recover them coincided with escalating tensions between Poles and Lithuanians after the war. After becoming involved in Polish self-defense efforts in Vilno, Vilnius, Lithuania, modern day, he traveled as part of a delegation to Warsaw to inform Józef Piłsudski of the vital need for support against the Bolshevik forces threatening the city. Having finally regained his manor and property, Jałowiecki was forced to escape under dramatic circumstances on Christmas Eve 1918, when local peasants warned him of advancing Bolshevik forces. He left with the clothes on his back, catching the last train to Warsaw, never to return to Silgudishki again. And just a few words here about this first slide. These are um, two uh, maps of uh, interwar Poland showing the, um, the relief project carried out by the American Relief Administration. On the left, you have uh, a map showing the uh, extent of the uh, relief for the textile industry and the raw materials sent throughout Poland. And on the right, you have a map of all the feeding stations throughout the country. There are about 7,000 of them at the high point. But uh, the purpose of showing these maps is to illustrate how crucial Gdańsk or Danzig at that time was to, uh, to sending the supplies into Poland. It was the closest port, but it wasn't under Polish control. And it was the only way that, that such a large amount of uh, material could get into Poland uh, at the time. Border conflicts were ongoing throughout uh, the, the borders of the newly reborn Polish Republic, and Gdańsk was, was the uh, entryway that had to be uh, utilized. Um, and I will come back to this slide. Here we have the Polish delegation to Gdańsk. Jałowiecki is the second from the left, uh, and then standing is uh, Jan Rao, and to his left with the mustache is Witold Bankowicz. So they were the first Poles to uh, uh, be part of the Danzig or Gdańsk delegation that grew substantially over time. With Jałowiecki's extensive contacts throughout Polish society and his respected reputation, he was called upon by Minister of Approvisation or Supply, 
Antoni Minkiewicz to coordinate the food shipments from Danzig to Poland, a responsibility he joyfully accepted, even more so that it had been personally approved by Piłsudski, the leader of Poland. Despite Jałowiecki's initial enthusiasm, the role he agreed to would be a very difficult one. Minkiewicz told him, I know that you like risky business. Why don't you make the sign of the cross and go on this risky venture? You are just as likely to be killed by the Germans as you are to get a bullet in the head from your own side. But the matter is serious. It's about peace in the country, and I know that there isn't a better candidate for it. Knowing the gravity of the task at hand, Jałowiecki sought the aid of Witold Wankowicz, a Polish Red Cross organizer, soldier of the first Polish First Corps in Russia, and a friend and fellow agriculturalist from the Lithuanian region. Both Jałowiecki and Wankowicz spoke English, a critical skill given their work with the Americans, and to a lesser extent with the British. The former having studied as a child in the British school in St. Petersburg, Russia, and the later having the latter having been a student at the University of Cambridge. Jałowiecki thought very highly of Vankovic and wrote of him, he was the main axis of our work in Danzig, and he was the moral backdrop against which our entire action developed. Jan Rao was the final member of the initial three government delegates to Danzig. He was the brother-in-law of Admiral Michał Borowski and was recommended highly by him. Borowski himself would later join the Poles in Danzig at Jałowiecki's request and run the port operations for the government delegation. Jałowiecki had a strong preference for associates who came from the lands of the former Grand Duchy of Lithuania, whom he believed possessed characteristics unique among Poles. We carried out of our family manners from the atmosphere still full of tradition faith and ideals, a burning desire to serve our homeland. Finally, certain idealized notions about Poles. In our distant borderlands, to be a Pole meant above all being an honest and decent person. Polishness in the borderlands was an obligation to a certain moral responsibility. These traits of borderland Poles were even respected by the Russians. The Polish element was primarily represented by the landed gentry, which still had in its veins many knightly elements, which underwent trials by fire of Russification, uprisings, prisons, Siberia, and persecutions. From the cradle, we were maintained in the conviction that every Pole has more moral obligations than other nations. This testament of blood was preserved between the white walls of Lithuanian manners from father to son, from generation to generation. Jowiecki's first interaction with the American mission was in its headquarters in the Blue Palace on Senatorska Street in Warsaw. And here we have the, uh, the American delegation of the U.S. Food Administration, which became the American Relief Administration uh, a few months after its arrival in January of 1919. The fellow uh, with the military uniform on the left is Colonel uh, William R. Grove. He was the leader of the mission. In the middle is Vernon Kellogg, who uh, was a close associate of Herbert Hoover. He was there briefly to assess the food situation in Poland back in 1915 before relief could be begun after the war. And then next to him 
uh, also in the mil military uniform, the second from the right, is Chauncey McCormick, uh, who was the uh, assistant to, to Grove. The two gentlemen on either side, the one on the, with the suit, is Alexander Znamietsky, who was the secretary of the mission, and then uh, Captain Leo Chaya on the, the far side, who was also one of the, uh, the members of the mission. Colonel Grove, a typical Yankee, made a very pleasant impression upon me, said Yawavetsky. He treated the matter very seriously. He was energetic, exceedingly hardworking, and demanding of others. McCormick was the third generation, American millionaire type, yet very friendly, but being accustomed to great luxuries, he was less suited to the type of mission that was the Warsaw office of the American Food Administration. Yawavetsky's job was to organize rail transportation. Finding sufficient rolling stock would prove to be a great challenge due to its poor condition or outright absence after four years of war. Nearly half of the locomotives at this time were out of service and in repair. Other locomotives and wagons could not leave Lvov, modern-day Lviv, for strategic reasons, and the entire rolling stock in Brest, or modern-day Brest, was still in German hands. On January 30th, acting on the request of Herbert Hoover, Colonel Grove left Warsaw for Danzig with Lieutenant McCormick and the Polish government delegation to lay the groundwork for the importation of relief supplies. When the group reached the Polish border at Mwawa, they were met by a German escort and accompanied to Soldau, Jaudowo, Poland today, for a meeting with German officers. As a condition of entry into Danzig, a statement had to be signed assuring the German authorities that the Americans and Poles would not engage in political propaganda or discussions. The meeting was noted by Jałowiecki for its terseness, accented by curt bows instead of handshakes, and that neither side removed their caps. For Jałowiecki and the Poles, their mission took on a far greater significance than it possibly could for the Americans, who despite their professionalism were not emotionally tied to Poland. Danzig represented a gateway to the outside world for Poland. It was the city to which our hopes flowed, wrote Jałowiecki, our aspirations, the city that opened up the gates for us to faraway, ungrasped maritime expanses and to great international trade routes. Upon their arrival in Danzig on February 1st, Grove, McCormick, and the Poles spent several days networking with German officials, military personnel, municipal authorities, and businesses in the city, which would be hired to carry out the work. The disposition of the Americans toward the Germans was a judiciously positive, uncompromising attitude maintained by Colonel Grove and uh, Lieutenant McCormick at these early conferences and by Major Webb and Captain Hanrahan during the later stages of the job on all of the larger issues which arose at Danzig con convinced the Germans that they had no course but to comply in the best spirit possible with Article 16 of the Armistice Agreement, ending the First World War. Hesitation or lack of confidence at the early stages of the project would have been ruinous and no time was the fact lost sight of that German confidence in American aims was the prime lubricant for the work, and all the Allied and Polish interests in Danzig were handled through the American mission. 
it was decided the ships would be unloaded at Free Basin, Freibezir, which was enclosed within a strong woven wire stockade, which can be easily guarded and equipped with mobile cranes. And though warehouse space was mostly sufficient, it lacked grain elevators uh, to bring the grain out of the, uh, uh, the ships. The basin would accommodate three 24-foot draft vessels and three vessels of 20-foot draft at the same time, though this would prove to be insufficient and some vessels would be unloaded in other parts of the harbor into river barges on the Vistula and into grain elevators. While Danzig offered the closest port to Poland's border, the facilities were far from ideal and caused various difficulties for the Poles overseeing the unloading and forwarding of supplies. The offices of the American mission along with the Poles were opened at the Hotel Danziger Hof, since the quote-unquote offices of the Poles and the Americans doubled as their sleeping quarters, it was impossible to disconnect from the constant work. The situation was somewhat mediated by the fact that all three of the Poles knew English, which may have been the only time that many Poles could communicate directly with the Americans at once during that period. Nonetheless, the challenge of pronouncing Polish names would lead to humorous situations. Mieczysław Jałowiecki was nicknamed Yellow Whiskey, then shortened simply to Yellow, whereas Stanisław Podulicki, who later joined the Secretariat of the delegation, was christened Bottle Whiskey. The nicknames were not random, but referred to the preferred method of relaxation on cold days and nights in Danzig, often to Jałowiecki's chagrin. As he recalled, the evening sessions in my room, however, were exceedingly tiring. In the early morning, I had to sweep and air out my room myself, since in the atmosphere, dark from smoke, to get rid of it was an impossibility. Since some ship paid a visit to port, I could be sure that that evening I would have a visit from several officers. It became established that an arrival at Gdańsk was connected to drinking a few bottles of some alcoholic beverage at Yellow Whiskies. I was often surprised at how the officers ended up at mine in just a few hours, not knowing the city or conditions. They came in like smoke to my room in the Danziger Hof. While the Poles were also generally satisfied with the work of Ick and Prow, the firm tasked with unloading relief ships, they harbored a distrust of German dock workers. The port worker is inclined to thieving and pillage by nature, let alone a starving worker egged on against Poland, wrote Jałowiecki. Fear of what, what could happen from fellow Poles raised equal concern. We also knew that at the time, Poland was still overflowing with various kinds of bandits, that train robberies were still commonplace occurrences. Uh, per the agreement between Germany and Poland, the Poles would return a train of empty rail cars to the Germans to account for each incoming train of relief supplies. If the deficit of cars on the Polish side were to grow to more than 200 cars, the transshipment of supplies could be suspended at the discretion of the German railways. This occurred several times, stopping traffic for one or two days, which caused congestion that lasted even longer to unwind. Here we have a photograph of some of the uh, American ships that came into Danzig in 1919. It was 
quite full at that time. The unloading of uh, uh, barrels of lard from the ship. You can see the, uh, the front of the ship um, at the right side of the photograph behind the uh, mobile crane. So they did have electrified equipment, but of course a lot was done through manual labor. But it was, a, it was an interesting mix of, of uh, increasingly modern technology with, with uh, manual labor. And here they're loading it directly into a rail car. You can see the rail tracks and then the rail car. So they tried to be as efficient as possible to immediately unload the supplies and move the large amounts and heavy volume uh, using rail whenever possible. At times, up to half a dozen separate German government agencies needed to be consulted and their approval received to transfer shipment of supplies to Poland. Political tensions between the federal government in Berlin and the provisional and field offices surely added to the complexity of the undertaking, undermining the stereotype of German efficiency. Indifference and even hostility to the project of supplying a perceived enemy surely inspired some of the difficulties encountered by the Americans and Poles in Danzig. Security for the Free Basin was provided by the Bürgerwehr, the uh, police deputies consisting primarily of discharged soldiers. The problems arose initially when its members ignored or actively collaborated with dock workers who were stealing from incoming cargoes. They were augmented and overseen by a detachment of Danzig's municipal police who were considered, quote, more efficient and much more dependable. A motorized boat patrol also operated at the mouth of the Vistula, the Weichselmunde, or the Wisła Uyście in Polish, to prevent thefts by water. Soldiers of the 17th Corps served as guards for the food trains between Danzig and the Polish border. Though the idea of stationing Allied troops in Danzig was rejected due to the costs and complications it would cause, American warships maintained a regular presence in the harbor. From February until August 1919, the ships Eilwyn, Harvard, Leah, and Greer relieved each other in sequence. During acute periods of tension, whenever affairs seemed likely to become a trifle strained, one or two or three French and British cruisers or destroyers would usually meander casually into port just for a visit. The first ships of food to reach Danzig on February 17 were the Lake Wimico, Lake Dancy, and Lake Mary, each carrying close to 2,000 tons of flour. The ships, all manned by U.S. Navy crews, originated in Rotterdam, their cargoes having been obtained from Commission for Relief in Belgium warehouses there. Later, ships would take on their cargo in American ports on the eastern seaboard and make the transatlantic trip directly to Danzig. Uh, and on February 18th, the first food relief train, consisting of 40 cars carrying about 600 tons of flour, crossed the frontier into Poland. Here we have a photograph of one of the relief ships, and you can see this uh, method that they had of uh, they built uh, or had ramps standing there next to the ship, and they would roll barrels or carry sacks of flour directly from the ship 
uh, into the rail cars. And in the photograph on the right, you see uh, grain being dumped onto these barges that went down the Vistula River towards Warsaw and into other points in Poland. So the majority of the food supplies and supplies in general came by rail, but the small river barges were also crucial to the operations, especially when there was large volume of ships and materials being offloaded, since obviously everything couldn't be stored in, uh, in Danzig on site. It had to move as quickly as possible. Jałowiecki would personally accompany the first train of food from Danzig to Warsaw early that morning uh, of February 17th, 1919, to check the soundness of the system they had devised. It would turn out to be one of the most dramatic episodes of his life, tremendously fatigued from the day's work and excitement of receiving the first food ships. Jałowiecki boarded the train at 2 a.m. in the company of numerous conductors in the German military escort tasked with guarding the train. To Jałowiecki's amazement, all of the soldiers and most of the conductors left the train at the Danzig main station. While the few conductors left looked at each other nervously. After a half hour stop in Trev, the train began to move again, when Jałowiecki suddenly noticed that all of the remaining conductors had jumped out of the train. He leapt out of the baggage car of the moving train and managed to race towards the locomotive, jumping onto its steps, confronting the machinist. The train hit the highest gear. We were speeding towards Malbork before reaching the bridge on the Nogat, which is a branch of the Vistula. The driver started to rapidly brake the train and was preparing to jump out of the locomotive, while both of the firemen disappeared into the darkness. With lightning speed, I drew my browning. Fahren, drive, I yelled. The driver yanked the regulator. The train gained speed. I held the revolver ready to shoot. Schneller los, go faster. I called out. Moments later, Jałowiecki heard and felt a loud boom behind the train. Once it arrived in Malbork, he walked to the back of the train and could see that the rear wall of the last car was ripped open and a white stream of flour was pouring out. Apparently, a plan had been devised to derail the train, but Jałowiecki's quick thinking averted disaster and may well have saved his life. In the ensuing months, the pace of arriving ships would increase, causing logistical problems of un unloading huge volumes in a port not suited for such traffic. In early April alone, there were 11 vessels in the Free Basin discharging at one time, the greatest number of food ships the mission handled in the port of Danzig at one time until the month of June. It was, in fact, the largest number of vessels ever simultaneously in the process of discharging within the Free Basin and badly taxed its capacity. In the five months covering February 17th to, to July 31st, 1919, 80 ships were unloaded roughly 300,000 tons of release supplies, which were sent to Poland. Of this, 220,000 tons were transported to Poland in 16,000 freight cars, and the remaining 80,000 tons in 550 barges on the Vistula River. Without the American mission to enforce the terms of the armistice agreement, it is unlikely 
given the hostilities between Poland and Germany, that any substantial and consistent cargoes would have made it into Poland during this period. American aid to Poland after the First World War is likely the most underrated phenomenon in the early history of the Second Polish Republic. Perhaps the most compelling argument in favor of the ARA's effectiveness is not so much the food itself, but the means of supplying that food and a plethora of other goods that Poland had no other way to secure. And uh, a few pictures here. One is with the grain elevators. So here they were able to uh, fill the cars, train cars, um, directly with, with grain or other, other supplies as they rolled up. And then here you have these spiral chutes. So when you had goods in, uh, in sacks, they could be tossed there and they would slide down. It was just a more efficient way to move them around these uh, warehouses. And then here you have an example of the manual labor where much of the work was done with just carrying, carrying things on, on the backs of, uh, of these dock, dock laborers, stevedores. As Jałowiecki wrote, the food situation in which the Polish nation found itself after liberation from the occupiers was indeed tragic. Fatigued from war, paralyzed by a long period of captivity and misery, our homeland had lifted itself up from a condition of such weakness, such anemia, that even the most optimistic diagnosis could not prophesy a quick recovery of the system without administering the strongest and most radical nourishing remedies. Poland could not find these remedies within itself. The entire enormous, most fertile tracts of the country had been destroyed and ruined from the fields stripped bare, from the burned manor houses and villages, an abundant stream of food and agricultural products, like in the good old days, was not flowing to the cities. The destroyed countryside oftentimes itself had held out its hands to the cities for rescue. Industry froze, there was no work. In industrial areas, hunger and extreme poverty reigned, and with them came ever greater moral decay, ever greater demoralization, sickness and mortality, especially among children, reaching terrifying proportions. Jałowiecki understood, along with his superior, Minister Minkiewicz, that food from abroad was the only lifeline for a na nation on life support. As Jałowiecki wrote, at such a critical moment, rescue had to be searched for, help from the outside, attempts to supply Poland with foodstuffs, which would allow it to survive the dangerous crisis. With this in mind, the Polish government and the person of Minister of Approvisation turned to the Entente nations, particularly to the United States of North America, with the goal of buying the necessary food supplies. This heavy task was taken up in its entirety by the Ministry of Approvisation. A contract was signed by which America is to supply Poland around 50,000 wagons of food, mainly flour and fats. The transport was to take place by water to Gdańsk and from there by trains and the Vistula within the borders of the Polish state. Along with food, opening the gates of Danzig to Poland meant a steady flow of military material, medical supplies, and commercial imports of all kinds. As Jałowiecki noted, 
besides provisioning transports in the form of wheat, seed, and flour, as well as fats, uh, came through Gdańsk the army supplies of the mission of General Rommel, the American Red Cross, in the form of food, clothing, medications, bandages, etc., as well as merchandise of private companies, which, until the ratification of the peace treaty, could not go any other way than under the flag of the American Relief Administration, and then to the general delegation in Gdańsk to Poland. An example here of uh, the supplies, flour, I believe, being weighed on the left. And here they are sealing the train cars. Of course, the seal could easily be broken, but it was one way of, uh, of ensuring security of the transportation. There were checks along the way. Of course, there were troops that accompanied the trains. There was theft, but that occurred mostly in the early phase during unloading when it was the easiest to, uh, to steal. Although that was countered by the Americans in Gdańsk by giving the dock workers, the mostly German dock workers, the opportunity to purchase food, which they also needed at a reasonable rate. And that was meant to discourage them from stealing. Of course, if someone was, was stealing, they would be uh, they would be gotten rid of, they'd be fired. But that was one way of trying to secure the, uh, the majority of the supplies. Obviously, some, some losses were to be expected. Here you have the USS Harvard, one of the American ships that visited the port at Danzig occasionally to ensure that the Germans knew that they, uh, the Americans had had the forces there in the area and they could uh, militarily enforce the armistice if need be, but it luckily didn't come to that. And then here you have Jałowiecki meeting with some of the allied officers. He's the one, he's the third from the left with the mustache and the dark suit with his right arm hanging over the chair. And that's in, in Gdańsk, Danzig. And then here you have some of the members of the American mission in Danzig. There were about 20 of them at its height. It was operational until 1923. I don't have it in this presentation, but there's a grainy photograph of the last rail car out of uh, Danzig headed for Poland. In that case, it was for intelligentsia relief. So the American Relief Administration had different programs. And one of the last programs, which wrapped up in 1923, was for, um, for intellectuals, basically people who, uh, who worked in what was called intelligentsia, uh, lawyers, educators, scientists, that type of, uh, that type of individual. And then here you have some of the recipients of the aid. This is a open air kitchen for uh, children. Um, well, the children are, are looking at the camera. Maybe it's the first time they ever saw a camera. And above them, you can see a portrait of Herbert Hoover with the Polish and the United States flags. The conditions here are fairly reasonable. You have a table and chairs and bowls 
in the more extreme conditions, especially further in Eastern Poland, the kids were often living in um, trenches left over after the war and food would be delivered to them on trucks that were donated by the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and other organizations and they would have food delivered that way. The standard that the ARA tried to maintain was that food was cooked and prepared on site and given served to the children directly there in these kitchens to make sure that they got the food that they needed. Antoni Minkiewicz and Mieczysław Jowiecki met the American mission at the Vienna station in Warsaw when their train pulled in on January 4th, 1919. After their official greetings, they drove to the Blue Palace about a mile away, where rooms had been prepared for the mission. During dinner, Jałowiecki was sitting in between Colonel William R. Grove, leader of the mission, and Minkiewicz playing the role of interpreter. The Americans were ready to get down uh, to business right away. Grove declared that he wanted to hit the road immediately to familiarize himself with the situation in the country. Uh, and just a few words about Grove. He was awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery in the Philippine-American War. And he was also the one of the assistants to the Quartermaster General during the uh, World, First World War. And he was in charge of the food supply for the army. So he was really an ideal a person to be brought in, especially in this crucial first phase of the American mission to Poland. The first ships bearing loads of flour, fats, and canned meats were slated to arrive at an as of yet unknown Baltic port, no sooner than six weeks from that point. Well, said Grove, as he stood up from the table, so when are we leaving? Minkiewicz's secretary replied that, if you wish, then tomorrow evening. Grove, a man not used to wasting time, sharply replied, if in the evening, why not tonight? Interpreting Minkiewicz's reply, Jałowiecki said, getting to Lwów is not that easy. There are still battles going on there. Passing through has to be adequately prepared and agreed upon with the military authorities. At this time, Poland was in conflict with the Ukrainians, and Lwów was the center of the uh, major uh, conflict. In what was an uncharacteristic situation, at least according to stereotypes, it was Poles who had to restrain someone from want wanting to rashly forge ahead into dangerous waters. The attitude, however, was very characteristic of the American mission and the ARA, and that attitude, at least to some degree, was contagious to the Poles who had the opportunity to work with them. It is without a doubt that the Gdańsk episode was Mieczysław Jałowiecki's finest achievement and Antoni Minkiewicz, whose life was tragically cut short just a year later. He was killed in July of 1920 by the, uh, the Bolsheviks during the, uh, the Polish-Soviet War uh, when his train was attacked. He deserves equal credit, if not more, for recognizing the significance of the Baltic port taking full advantage of the opportunity that the presence of the American mission afforded and selecting perhaps the most capable man in Poland for the job, Jałowiecki, a multilingual, talented, 
and creative individual who has not yet gotten his due in the history books. Although it was signed after the fact, once the port of Danzig had been uncorked and food ships were already arriving, the agreement between Poland and the United States for the latter to supply food to the former codified one of the most consequential episodes in the first months of Poland's rebirth. The ARA was the key to unlocking the gates of Poland, not just for humanitarian aid, but for the critical economic commerce as well. Here we have uh, the covers of Jarowiecki's memoirs. There's an early edition from the uh, early 1990s on the left, and then a later edition uh, on the right. The book Wolne Miasta, or Free City, referring to Danzig or Gdańsk, was the last book that St. John Paul II read, or he actually had it read to him. Uh, he was, his health was already failing then, but it was the last book that he, he uh, heard. And uh, later editions were published, most recently in uh, 2021, which is a collection, it's actually over my, my shoulder here, uh, of, of Jałowiecki's memoirs. Nonetheless, he's still an underappreciated person in, uh, in Polish history. Here we have the cover of that most recent edition, which includes three of his memoirs in one book. And then on the right, you have a photo presumably signed to his nephew, where he signs it Uncle Yellow. So you can see that the nickname Yellow Whiskey, or at least the first part Yellow, stuck. Jałowiecki deserves his own biography. Uh, I at least plan to write a lengthier article in English about him since he certainly deserves it. He was a very talented individual. And just to mention one of the things that he did, he was an artist and he painted over 1,000 watercolors of manor houses, mostly from his uh, region, what is now uh, Lithuania. And uh, those materials are housed at the Hoover Institution, Library and Archives at Stanford University. And my father, Dr. Maciej Sikierski, who's now the curator emeritus of the European collection at the Library and Archives, helped to popularize those materials to, uh, to a large degree. In 2013, he was uh, honored by the Ministry of Culture of Lithuania for helping to bring those digitized watercolors to Lithuania as a part of their national heritage. The memoirs are also at the Hoover Institution. They came there in the early 1960s. I haven't studied the exact history of how they arrived, but that'll be a part of, of what I do as I continue writing some more about Jelowiecki. And uh, in conclusion, Poland was in dire straits in 1919 through 1920, and there was no certainty that the flickering flame of national independence that had been born from the implosion of its three partitioning empires could survive the geopolitical storms that followed. Thanks to America, Poland was given a fighting chance. If you'd like to learn more about Jałowiecki, this subject matter, not very much has been written in English. You can visit my website, researchteacher.com. I'll post this talk 
once it's up. And I will also add links about Jałowiecki, since, like I said, he's not very well known in Polish and in the English-speaking world, uh, almost not at all. Though I can add that just recently I learned that a researcher discovered his grave in England. Apparently it uh, had been forgotten about and he found it in England. So that's one way that his memory is being preserved. And I think there will be a lot more to say about Mieczysław Jałowiecki, this episode in history uh, as time goes on. Thank you again for having me and we'll see you next time.